0: thinking as I came here, I'd missed two sections of uh, parables. So I had to catch up and uh, do all of that. But uh, thank, thankful for Brian stepping in there. Uh, but uh, glad to get back to this here this evening. So let's go to Lord in prayer, and uh, we'll look at this parable here this evening uh, as we start. Lord, we thank you that you're God that is one who desires us uh, to fellowship with you and you give us opportunities to approach you in prayer and uh, in worship. Uh, but uh, may we take uh, the warning here this evening from this parable, uh, a warning to uh, individuals that thought they were doing okay, uh, but they weren't. And uh, we pray that uh, we would learn from that and be uh, individuals that don't take casually the fact that we can come to you in prayer. So Lord, we love you we thank you for your warnings and uh, examples and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn over to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Last week uh, you would have had a parable on prayer. It's a prayer uh, that we would uh, describe as sometimes the unjust judge, but It is um, a parable about persistency. In fact, your first note there is this, that the previous parable was a challenge to believers that if their prayer was right, they ought to persist until it receives an answer. Okay, that's the the space that's there, that you persist. Um, We have to remind ourselves when you have that parable, you have the unjust judge who has this lady who keeps coming. She's got a legitimate cause... It's not that she's making it up. It's not a want. She's got somebody that she needs to uh, get taken care of by the judge that's going after her unfairly, unjustly. Uh, And so she keeps coming to this judge, and he finally throws up his hands and goes, if I don't finally deal with her, then, you know, uh, I'll never hear the end of this. So fine, here's your answer. I'll take care of it. Uh, We have to remember that the unjust judge, though, you know, you think of, okay, this is God, us going to him. God's not like that. God's not up there going, oh, they keep asking. All right, fine, I'll, I'll answer them. Uh, this is a common tactic of children. They like to come and nag, 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 and you know, finally the parent in the frustration just goes, okay, fine, um, you know, I'll do it. Um, God's not like that. But the parable's not about God in that one. It's about the individuals persisting against all uh, opposition and difficulty that you persist. I was thinking uh, about, uh, you know, how long do we pray for? Well, until it gets answered. I mean, we use the illustration uh, quite often of a man by the name of George Mueller who was known for his prayer. I mean, he started orphanages not just because he felt bad about the plight of orphans. He did, but uh, he did it to prove that God could take care of the orphan. You know, the the scripture talks about this, that he's the the God of the widow and the orphan and the fatherless, and he started praying for this, but he also prayed about a lot of other things, and he he had been a a kind of a wild individual when he was young, and he was business associates that were with him, not uh, the greatest of individuals, but he spent his life uh, witnessing to them, but he also prayed for them daily, and you have that prayer that uh, was answered when one of those men got saved just before he died, 50 years after he started praying for them, and then one of them got saved after. I mean, that's persistence. It's a right thing. It's a right thing for a person to get saved. So here he is persisting in something that is obviously a good thing. So that parable was designed for believers to tell them, you need to continually persist before the throne of God until you get an answer. You do that, and uh, the Lord will, will hear you. You'll get an answer sooner or later. So this parable that we're going to look at today is not for that type of a person. It's not necessarily for what we'd say believers, disciples, uh, whatever. It's this. Is, uh you look at the notes, it was for people who thought that they had earned righteousness. Okay, that they had somehow earned a uh, right standing before God. And as a result, they despised other people. And you look at the beginning of this parable in verse number 10, or excuse me, verse number 9 says this, he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. I mean, it's very clear. Luke goes, he's not speaking to generally disciples. He's preaching to people who think they're okay and they're not. And Jesus was addressing the Pharisees, though it doesn't come out directly and say this. He was answering the question, and this is an important question because it goes beyond prayer. What is the, and I'll put it this way, the basis for one to approach God in prayer? What's the basis? what, What allows for us? What's the right, the authority that we have to come into the presence of God? What's the basis that we have in approaching him? And Jesus is going to answer that. Now, I want us to read the parable through. We'll read it through, and then we'll uh, come back to the notes here. But in verse number 10, Jesus starts this parable and says this, Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one was a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, "'God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, "'extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. "'I fast twice in a week. "'I give tithes of all that I possess.'" The publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven, but smote on his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And here's Jesus' analysis, verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. What you have here in this uh, parable is a massive contrast. In that society, they would have understood the polar opposites, as we might put it, uh, of what we have represented here. You have two persons that are here. Okay, the first one that we know well is uh, the Pharisee. The Pharisees were the most respected individuals in Jesus' day. I mean, they get a bad rep in our time because you're like, oh, you're a Pharisee, bad person. In that day, those are the people you wanted as neighbors. Those are the people that you wanted nearby. Those are the people that you're like, okay, I trust them more than I trust anybody else. Um, They're the good people, as it would be described. I mean, what you have at the end of that first paragraph in that uh, person section is this. No one would question their standing with God. No one in society would be like, oh, you know what? They aren't gonna make it. No, everyone's thinking, okay, if anybody's impressive to God, It's them they they were revered uh, by many because of the fact of what they did who they were the knowledge that they had they were ones that everybody would have said most important person in our society because they didn't have a government really Uh, the Romans ruled so these are the most important people outside of Roman officials in the society on the other side, you have the second person that was a tax collector. It's described as a publican here, but that's just a fancy word for a tax collector. And they were traitors to everyone in Jesus' society. I mean, there's no one going, oh, tax collectors are fine individuals. We love them. You know, they're not getting Christmas gifts uh, in the mail uh, when Christmas comes along. They, they, don't, they don't get that kind of thing. No one likes them. Uh, they were often viewed worse than people who committed clear sins against the law, as exemplify, exemplified by the Pharisee as he prays, oh, I'm not like the extortioner or adulterers or evildoers, oh, or I'm not even like, you know, let's get the worst person in the world, the tax collector. I mean, that's, that's the extreme he can go to. I'm not like sinners, and I'm not like that sinner. Um, so this man would have been one that uh, would have not been, as you see at the end of your notes there, would not have been allowed access to the synagogue and were outcast to most people. You know, it was there official rule that they couldn't show up in the synagogue? Not that I can find, but uh, there is record that they wouldn't have been invited and they would have been told, go away. Why well, we don't want you here. See, one, one put it this way when I was reading through it, that the contrast is this extreme you have the president of the United States and a prostitute. That's the difference here. Or a Supreme Court justice and a rapist. That's, that's, that's the difference. That's the colossal difference between the persons uh, here represented. So just starting off the story, people in that day would go, you know, two people going in different directions, different, you know, everything. They would uh, automatically put them in different categories you then have not just the contrast of persons, you have the contrast of the prayer. Okay, the prayer of the Pharisee starts with his stance. It says, as you read there in verse number uh, 11, that the Pharisee stood and prayed uh, with himself. Well, here's here's the thing. Is standing uh, bad when praying? Okay. It doesn't matter. Uh, you read through the Bible. There are people who are standing when they pray. They're kneeling when they pray. They're on the ground when they pray. They're asleep. Well, laying in bed, they're praying. I mean, so you just kind of go through. You know, what, what's what's the proper stance for prayer? There isn't one. You know, and is it folding the hands? Is that you know uh, biblical too? And I, you know, go find it. I don't know. I don't think, if I remember correctly, that there's ever folding of the hands. The stance. Isn't important, but the stance here says something about the Pharisee, because he stands and what he's doing is that he is he is scanning the crowd when he goes there. They they go up to the temple. You go, why do they go to the temple? Well, this is the place that God had made very clear. Uh, this is where he would meet with people. Okay, even Jesus says when he's clearing out the temple, this is a house of sacrifice. No, he he calls it a house of prayer. It's a place to come and commune with God, to fellowship with God. That's the purpose of uh, the sacrifices is not just merely to get the sacrifices done. It's for a person to be able to fellowship, communicate with God. That's why God saves people. He wants that to happen. So here he goes, you meet with me at the temple. Okay? You can pray anywhere, but especially here it's obvious you've got times at uh, 9 o'clock in the morning and 3 o'clock in the afternoon uh, where these hours of sacrifice are given, there's a sacrifice that's given and someone goes in with the incense and puts it on the altar of incense and the smoke goes up and there's these times of prayer that they even had as part of their daily worship in the temple. So here you got the Pharisee going and more than likely he's there with everybody else they liked occasions, there was a lot of people and he's scanning the crowd and looking through this but here's the weird wording of this in verse number 11 it says that he is praying thus with himself it doesn't say he's praying to God he says he's praying to himself out loud, not that he's quiet He's, he's praying this out loud but he's praying to himself not to God and he's going around and what you see is that his, his prayer as he's uh, looking around at people, he was impressed with himself. It is even said that he prayed to himself, that's the blank that's there, the focus was self. Th- this is not a new thing the Lord confronts. Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7, you've got the Sermon on the Mount. And in the middle of that, in chapter 6, you have three different things that the Lord says, here's what you can do. You can give alms, you can pray, and you can fast. Three things that God said you can do in the Old Testament. These are good things to do. But he then deals with not the fact of whether or not you're doing it. It's how you do that. There are some that would go and stand on the street corners. And make their prayers known, and they would fast. Uh, and the, the Pharisees would actually put on makeup. They'd darken their eyes and all of this, and they would go through this whole process that people would go, Ooh, wow, they're fasting too. But they would pray on the street corner, and the Lord says they've got their reward. They've been seen of men. And when you give your alms, don't know what your right hand and your left hand is doing. Uh, they would go in and you have the illustration when you have Jesus observing the treasury and the money being brought in and you've got all these people coming in and, and having you know, huge sums of money. In some cases they talk about individuals who would actually have trumpets playing in front of them as they would come in with their gifts into the temple and the Lord says don't even let you know your right hand and left hand is doing well in the story of the widow's might you have all these people doing that and she comes in and she gives you know she it's like she runs in and she runs out she's not even you know she doesn't want anybody to see her she throws the the might in and the Lord goes she's given all he was impressed by that not the showy loud gifts of everybody clanking coins in there and then you had the idea of prayer and the Lord says you go to your closet to pray Now, that doesn't mean we don't pray in public, we don't pray, you know, we're going to get together here and pray and that type of thing. But he's just saying, don't let yourself get distracted by other things. You go to your closet to pray. Those that are outside are distracted by everybody else and they're looking to be seen by men. Don't do that. So this is not a new concept the Lord is talking about. It's not suddenly this, after three and a half years of ministry, he's going, you know, haven't dealt with this yet. It's stuff that he's talked about. The Pharisees did this on a regular basis, and you look at the prayer itself, the bottom paragraph there, it displays pride. He compared himself with others and thought he was better than everyone else. He's just kind of going around, better than him, better than him, better than her, better than them, better than them. He's not really praying. He did all those, the blank is there, extra things like fasting and tithing that others would not do. He didn't fast twice a week. And, and I don't doubt the fact that he does fast twice a week. Probably did. And did he give a tenth of everything he had? Uh, well, think about some of the times the Lord's got to challenge the Pharisees, and in Matthew chapter 23, they're, they're going to their spice rack and figuring out what they should give. You know, they're going through all these things, and the Lord's like, you're straining at a gnat. But you, you know, you aren't taking care of the rating matters of the law and those type of things. But they would go through and tithe very specifically on everything, including uh, the smallest of spices that they had in their spice rack. I mean, this man was impressed with himself, and that brings us to the back page because the contrast is completely different. Because you have someone who's not impressed with themselves. In fact, the depressed and ashamed of themselves. What you have with the tax collector is that he tries to stay away from everybody else in the temple. I mean, it may have been that if he showed up in the temple and people recognized him, they'd be like, what's he doing in the temple? I mean, that might have caused a riot. He does get seen because the Pharisee does see him and points it out and goes, oh, I'm not like that. But he goes and tries to find a quiet corner of the temple. His head is bowed I mean, he is looking downward. He's not looking up in pride. He's looking downward, a sign that he is in, in remorse, and he beats on his chest to show his visible remorse and sorrow over his condition. This is a normal thing that would happen during uh, funerals when they'd have great sorrow, when somebody would get lost. You'd have you know, people that were professional criers that they would hire because when a day a person died, they'd bury them, so you wanted to make sure everybody knew somebody had passed away. But then you would have people that were sometimes hired, but you'd have people that come along and they would be, you know, beating and crying, at the same time. And in that culture, that was the greatest sign of remorse, sorrow, was to do this type of thing. And here's this man over in the corner of the, the temple, and he is, he is beating himself, showing that he is sorrowful over himself. But you see, his prayer, prayer was a comparison. When he prays, he has a comparison in his prayer. It's just simply this. It's a right one. It's God and me, a sinner. He's got it right. God, not hey, that person over there and that person over there and oh, okay, maybe better than them. No, it's who who is the most important individual? God. And then there's here me, sinner. And he's got it right. I mean, that's, that's the attitude every individual ought to have if they're doing the comparison right. They come to God and realize, absolute sinner. I mean, the Apostle Paul called himself, himself the chief of sinners. You might say, well, you know, he was murdering people and that type of thing that were Christians, and yeah, he was a really bad person. But no, that was his view of himself. I was, yeah, I'm the chief of sinners. This man views himself as a sinner. He did not compare himself with others like the Pharisee. He looked at the one that was the most important when it comes to prayer. It's God himself. You see in that next paragraph, he did not ask God to ignore his sins. He doesn't come and go, Lord, you know, don't pay attention to how bad I am. Because God can't ignore sin. But he, uh, that, uh, he prays this, that he would have mercy towards him. Be merciful to me, a sinner. The verb have mercy comes from the noun for the mercy seat. You know, we might, might say this, Lord, mercy seat towards me. Now you say, what's the importance of the mercy seat? Well, when you come to the temple in the tabernacle complex, the mercy seat is something that rests directly on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It's a lid that would have been for that. It was made out of uh, pure gold. You had cherubim that would have been on that, and the wings would have been touching across uh, that, and the, the cherubim would be looking down on this flat plate that was there. The Ark of the Covenant was placed inside the holiest of uh, holies. The holy of holies is just simply saying it's the most holy place. Can't get anything holier than this. And it would sit in there year after year after year. No one saw it. No one went into the presence of that directly. But once a year you had the opportunity on the event known as Yom Kippur, Yom Day Kippur covering, the Day of Atonement, the Day of Covering, The priests uh, would come and they would lay their hands on the animal sacrifice outside. They would slit the neck there, collect the blood. They would offer the animal as a burnt sacrifice. The high priest would dress up in his official robes. He would take that blood and he would go into the Holy of Holies behind the veil and he would take that blood and he would sprinkle it directly on the mercy seat. That mercy seat sat above The law. The Ten Commandments were in there. And what it did was, is now you had blood covering this mercy seat because the Israelites, or excuse me, the priests were always breaking the law day in and day out. They would break the law, and what you have now is this blood that's covering the fact that they are not keeping the law. The priest would go back outside again. Uh, There would be a process of him changing garments and he would change again and he would come over and he would then, for the sake of the people, rest his hand upon uh, this beast, confess the sins of the people. Blood would be shed. Uh, Animal put on the burnt, uh, the altar for burning. They would take the blood. He would go back in again and for the sins of the people, he would cast the blood on top of that mercy seat. And then they would go out and you wouldn't do it again for another year. And you go, what, what are they doing there? Well, what, what was made clear when it came to the Day of Atonement was this. It was done each year so that the nation could, and this is the, the blank that's there, approach the presence of God. God said, I'll allow you to come and worship me, but you need to every year offer this sacrifice shows your understanding that you're sinful. Blood has to be shed for you to enter into the presence of God. You just don't get to come into my presence however you want. Something has to die, and I have to look on their sacrifice and not give you what you deserve because somebody else or something else has taken your spot. Uh, it's the term sometimes in the, in the theological circles is that God is propitiated. Now his judgment is satisfied. See, the tax collector realized this that he could not approach God unless he was under the blood given for sins. He realized he couldn't approach God on his own merit, uh, that he had to have, well, that sacrifice. This is why you had individuals having to offer sacrifices. You know, that, that national sacrifice wasn't the only sacrifice that went on. No, people came in all throughout the year because they had committed known sins and things that were obvious, and they said, well, listen, I, I, I can't approach the, uh, the God of heaven because I've got this guilt, I have the burden of sin, and so they would offer a sacrifice, and blood would be shed, and in those sacrifices, those people would come and confess their sins, put their head on the top of that animal, and, and there seems to be an indicator that they were the ones that would actually have to use the knife to cut neck of that animal. And you kind of go, I wouldn't want to do that. Well, it's, it's promoting the fact that no one gets into the presence of God unless there has been a sacrifice of blood, of propitiation that satisfies the wrath of God. This man understands, I don't get to come into the presence of God. In your conclusion here, Most people would assume that this parable is about how to pray. And, okay, it does talk about prayer, but the the emphasis is this. It is about who can approach God in prayer. Who has a right to approach God in prayer? In the parable, no requests were given by the Pharisee or the tax collector. We, We have their introductory statements. We don't have their prayers otherwise. Okay, opening statements, that's it. We're, we're not given, you know, what they prayed for, you know, how, what, what they did it, what manner, other than the fact of their introductory statements, uh, Lord, you know, I'm impressive to you or I'm not impressive to you. That's it. That's the only thing we're told about. So it's really not about prayer. In this sense, it focused on what they thought gave them a right to be heard by God. Now, Jesus did clarify to the amazement of most that we were in the crowd that the tax collector, not the Pharisee, were, were, was justified. I mean, they still, at the end of this, Jesus telling a the parable, they would have still said, oh, Pharisee's doing okay, yeah, you know, that rotten sinner over there, yeah, that publican, you know, he's got no hope of being heard by God. I mean, that, that's what they would have assumed. But here you have this, that he clarified that the tax collector, not the Pharisee, was justified. He was a man who was, when, it, when the Lord says in verse number 14 that he is justified, it means this, that he has a declared righteous standing. It's not that he's made righteous, that's sanctification. Justification is just merely this, it's a courtroom term. You have been declared not guilty. And what God sees so that you can approach him, he sees you as not guilty. He sees the blood. He doesn't see your sin. And because of that, not guilty, you can enter into my presence. And so here you have this man, he's been declared righteous. The tax collector recognized his sin and humbled himself before God. And you say, well, what's the most important, thing, you know, the greatest thing that can possibly happen for an individual when it says that the humble shall be exalted? It's this, for a person to be able to go into the presence of God and fellowship with Him. That is the most important thing in the universe for an individual to have is the opportunity to fellowship with God. Okay, There's, there's nothing higher than that but to be able to fellowship with God. And here this man humbles himself, says, I'm the worst of sinners. But because of God's merciful nature and a sacrifice that he is looking to, uh, looking forward to for this uh, story, we now look back on it, the sacrifice of his son, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world, who bears upon him the sins of the world, uh, we're now able to enter into the presence of God. And for him, the privilege uh, was to be able to fellowship with God. So you say, how do you, how do you get to fellowship with God? Do you try and impress him? No. Um, you think uh, through that statement, and I, I said it on Sunday too, but we have to remind ourselves that our righteousness in the sight of God are as filthy rags. I mean, the things that you wrap people's wounds with, band aids, whatever you want to call them, that's how God views our righteousness. No one's collecting those things and going, wow, this is really great. No, you're throwing that out, casting it aside. That's how God views our righteousness. It doesn't impress him. And God really doesn't care about all of our, our activity, um, that doesn't get us any closer to God. Uh, You read through, and I'm reading through Isaiah and Jeremiah right now, and you you have the Lord going after the people. And these are people who would show up at the temple. And he's going, you've got no approach to me. In fact, you're far from me. But they're offering sacrifices... They're showing up in the temple, they're doing all sorts of different things there, and they're thinking that's going to protect them. In fact, you get to the book of Jeremiah, and I think it's chapter 7, where they've got this statement, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and you go, well, what are they saying there? Well, hey, I went to the temple, I'm okay. I'm all right with God, because I, was, I showed up at the temple and did stuff. Uh, it's uh, the story in Micah that God's not impressed with rivers of oil and thousands of sacrifices, He doesn't care if your attitude's not right in the sense of recognizing yourself as you have nothing to impress God with. You say, well, why do I do those things? It's because you recognize that he is a great God and that he's one who delights in you you coming to him and so you enjoy the opportunity to fellowship with him that he's given in mercy for you to enjoy. And so that reflects a heart of thankfulness, a heart of joy, a heart of uh, gladness to be able to fellowship with God, those activities. But it's not the activities that God wants. He wants the attitude right where a person recognizes, I have nothing to impress God. I come short of the glory of God all the time but because of his son and the shed blood, I have the privilege to have mercy so that I can fellowship with the one true God. That's the most important thing that I can have. It's the one with whom you have to do that you're going to have to stand before him someday. So, you know, enjoy the fact that he's given us the offering of those that are humbled, I will exalt, I'll delight in fellowshipping with you. And that's not even for salvation. And we also, as believers, ought to just remind ourselves of this. I'm a saved sinner. And sometimes we do get to the point where we're looking around the room and we're going, My prayer is getting heard because I'm a good, really, really good, good person. And that person over there, probably not, you know, because they're not as good as I am. And you go, Oh, I've never had that thought. You have. You have. And so even saved people can have this kind of wrong attitude in their approach to God that somehow I'm more impressive and they forget the fact, no, you're just here because God's got mercy to you, a sinner. And that son, the son is the one that does it. This is why you then pray in his name. Now, why do we pray in Jesus' name? You know, is that, you know I always tell people, it's not the closing statement. You know, I mean, Jesus' name, okay, you know, okay, he's almost done, you know. And then he goes on to something, you know, this is what happens sometimes when you're praying and a person's praying and they say in Jesus' name, and then they go on for another five minutes and people are like, oh, you know, he was almost there. You know, he's almost done with his prayer. No, but you ought to have that in somewhere in your prayer. You can start with it. Now, do you have to end with your prayer being in Jesus' name? You could start off and going, I'm approaching you, Lord, Father, and your Son who's made this possible. I thank you for that. I mean you, you, you can start that way. You don't have to end with that but you're coming in the presence of God because you have the mercy and the blood of Jesus Christ to claim. So um, it is uh, even as believers we can sometimes get mixed up on this uh, when we come to our approach to God. We've already been saved but we can oftentimes in prayer approach in the wrong attitude thinking we're somehow impressive and we're not.